think it comes down to two things. One, we don't talk to each other. Um, mm. The levels of care don't talk to each other. I think we know this from acute care literature, research that I've done and others suggests that when we even complex patients that are transitioning from acute care to home or to post-acute care, we rarely get therapist to therapist communication to make sure things that are important about disability and function aren't dropped. Welcome to In the ED Now, a podcast to make you an excellent emergency department physical therapist. I'm your host, Dr. Rebecca Griffith, the EDDPT. In today's episode, I'm joined by Dr. Jason Falvey, a physical therapist and researcher in the Baltimore area who focuses on assisting elder adults with care transitions to help them age and thrive in place. In our episode today, he teaches us how to improve care transitions for our patients from the emergency department through communication strategies, risk stratification, and discharge planning. You won't want to miss this episode. Definitely some action takeaways that will help you improve your care for these patients to avoid readmissions and adverse outcomes. Thanks for listening. You're in the ED now. Hi, hi everybody. Welcome back to In the ED Now. I'm Rebecca Griffith, the EDDPT, and with me today is Dr. Jason Falvey. Welcome. Hey, good. Great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. I'm so happy to talk to you because I think we have a lot of overlap with what we do, even though it might not seem that way. So can you tell people a little bit about yourself? Sure. Uh, so I'm a physical therapist and I have practiced in home care before going into research in 2014. So I spent four years as a home care slash, you know, kind of jack of all trades therapist in Wyoming, not far from you. Mm -hmm. And uh, then went ahead and did my PhD at University of Colorado, so right right next door to, to where you're working in the ED, and did a lot of research around care transitions. How do we keep people at home and out of the hospital, um, you know, during periods of vulnerability, you know, after serious hospitalization, surgery, um, you know, or other, you know, major, major things that happen to people in their lives that challenge their independence. And... You know, now I'm a faculty member at the University of Maryland School of Medicine, uh, building on that research and doing much of the same. You know, how do we get out into the community and support people to be at home and out of nursing homes and, and not just surviving, but thriving in their communities? I think that's great. And because my goal is to keep people out of the hospital and out of the emergency department. And the emergency department is really like a gateway into the hospital system, into the healthcare system. And I think we can probably both agree that the more we can keep people out of that, then hopefully the better off they'll be. But that really requires a lot of support, yes? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think there's social supports, there's environmental supports in terms of the neighborhoods that you live in, how socially cohesive they are. There's a lot of medical factors and you know, just sometimes random luck of the draw where you live, rural versus urban can make a huge difference as, as you probably see on a daily basis. Yeah, and I know there's this conversation about like rural resources um, being very limited, but I, I find urban resources are also very limited and there's not like, there's just like not a great place to be unless you're in a very well-established and supported zip code, I think. Otherwise, you're kind of in a desert at either end. Yeah, I mean, our research here focuses on neighborhood socioeconomic disadvantage in urban areas. So I live in Baltimore which has a major divide between the wealthy and, and those who really are um, experiencing significant amounts of poverty. And those people that live in those zip codes that are, that are you know, 
most deprived are more likely to end up in the hospital. They're less likely to be able to live disability free and they're more likely to experience a lot of avoidable disability and mortality after these kinds of injuries. Um, so emergency department is an important resource, but um, certainly we have to put in a lot of steps afterward to help them transition back to their community successfully and, and thrive. So what is a care transition for people who may not know? So when I say care transition, I think about you know, generally from some sort of uh, inpatient setting, and that might be emergency department, it might be a hospital, it might be a nursing home, and transitioning that person to another level of care, um, whether that is to home and getting some home supports, whether that is to um, a post-acute care facility um, or rehabilitation facility, um, or whether that's to back to assisted living or, or um, you know, senior apartments. But either way, there's a period of vulnerability when you go from a higher intensity setting to a lower intensity setting in mm -hmm. terms of you have a lot of medical supervision, you get a lot of help, and then you're transitioning to places where maybe you're much more reliant on you know, caregivers, and you're much more reliant on neighborhood, and um, or you might be at the whims of things like weather, which you certainly don't have to worry too much about snow and ice and natural um, you know, the natural barriers to accessing care that you would if you're in an institutional facility. That's a good point. We definitely have uh, issues with discharging patients based on weather issues all the time. So I, that is not one that I would have thought of. So in the emergency department, I usually think of myself as like the person at the train station that helps people get on the right train, right? So as you talk about care transitions, that's a lot of what we do. Mm -hmm. as PTs in the emergency department, you're going on the subacute rehab train, you're going on the acute rehab train, I'll put you on the home health train with a wing and a prayer. I'm going to send you to outpatient PT because you're doing great. And then every once in a while, it's like, hey, like, I don't know that you need anything from me. Here's some reassurance. Let's get you set up at, back at home. Mm -hmm. But what are we missing in making those transitions successful? Because one of the major metrics that most emergency departments have is around bounce back. And I find that when those care transitions fail, we're seeing a lot of patients come back into the emergency department. Yeah. And so Paul, I, I think it comes down to two things. One, we don't talk to each other. Um, mm. The levels of care don't talk to each other. I think we know this from acute care literature, research that I've done and others suggests that when we even complex patients that are transitioning from acute care to home or to post-acute care, we rarely get therapist to therapist communication to make sure things that are important about disability and function aren't dropped. And disability and function aren't primary things that the medical team might be paying attention to. They might be more worried about that heart failure or that ejection fraction number or know which stage of COPD this person's at, but not necessarily what assisted device or um, what level of support or what their trajectory of functional recovery was. Big, big important piece of information that we often don't communicate across care settings. And for many reasons, partly because there's not an incentive to do it. Um, you know, there's often disincentives in terms of productivity to do that um, in yeah. the care setting. And in the emergency department setting, there's some pragmatic considerations. Like if it's 1 a.m., you're probably not gonna get very many outpatient or home care therapists on the phone. And if you do, they're not gonna be very happy with you. Yes. 
So, the joke is the joke is generally like no one wants to do physical therapy at two o'clock in the morning, especially the physical therapist. Yeah, no, it's absolutely true. We are we are not night owls as a, as a profession. I don't think. Um, at least I'm certainly not. Um, so the communication barriers are real, and I think the other part of it is we have zero framework or clinical practice guidelines to guide. We have no idea what the key hmm. pieces of information are. We have no standards of practice around this. So it is you know, unwarranted heterogeneity to the extreme. And yes. some facilities do it really well and they have a great system. And some don't do this, you know, they have zero structure for this. And the more medically complex patients you have, the more heterogeneous these structures are in terms of how you handle these really complex transitions. And I think that is a place that we're, we're very modifiable. The acute care PT section's actually working on a clinical practice guideline. And I'm part of this committee where they're working on what should be the common elements of care transitions and what pieces of information should be consistently um, you know, communicated across um, facilities. I think that makes sense. And there is research that exists that shows that physical therapist recommendations make a big difference to hospital readmissions. Is that correct? Yeah. And not following them has some significant implications. You know, when you take that recommendation and a physician decides then to send somebody to a lower intensity of care, um, there is a higher rate of readmissions. Um, those are small studies, but they are, you know, showing that if you're involved in, um, you know, discharge planning, physical therapists as part of discharge planning teams, that there's actually research that says that that reduces readmissions in and of itself. Um, and then following the discharge recommendation, there's a separate piece of literature that also says that that is a, uh, a very well-established strategy to reduce readmissions is follow the re recommendations of your therapist, which is becoming harder and harder in this, you know, quote unquote, value-based care system where we want to send people to the lowest cost settings that doesn't always meet their needs. Yeah. And what are the financial ramifications of patients being readmitted? Yeah. So hospitals can lose portions of their Medicare reimbursement, their overall Medicare reimbursement for all their patients and for excessive readmissions that are um, higher than their peers um, based on several factors, including um, you know, how complex their patients are and how sick they were. But there are penalties. Um, those penalties, unfortunately, do disproportionately impact hospitals that are treating the most socially disadvantaged patients. So, so there's certainly not a perfect metric of um, you know, understanding which hospitals are good and which hospitals are bad, but those penalties certainly do exist and they have led to some significant changes in how hospitals approach care transitions and mostly for the better, I would think. I think that makes a lot of sense. And, and I think in the emergency department in particular, we really don't want to have to be treating the same thing multiple times and having people come back for the same issues. Also, when we have a care transition that fails, like a patient was at a subacute rehab facility and then bounces back because of a fall or because they weren't medically ready to go, then it's harder for us to get that patient placed that second time. Yeah. I mean, I think those are, there's real patient centered outcome, um, you know, implications for readmissions, right? Readmissions aren't just a policy metric and they're not just like a hospital metric. Um, that patient that has to sit for extra days in the hospital um, because they can't get placed, there's a real risk of increased disability for patients that are readmitted for these uh -huh. reasons. Um, sure. and that, that kind of goes under-recognized, but 
readmissions are associated with declines in physical function that often persist for months or for years after um, that series of hospitalizations, and especially after things like surgery. That makes a lot of sense to me. I know with our current barriers with access to care, we have a lot of patients who are just holding in the emergency department as well. Like they need to be admitted to the hospital, but there are no beds. So they are maybe in the ED for three, four days at a time. And that leads to decreased mobility. It really leads to increased risk of delirium. It leads to, you know, bad positioning, Mm -hmm. so many different outcomes for these patients as well. So that if these patients who are already in a weak and vulnerable state are bouncing back to the ED and having to stay again, I think that's going to be very hard on those patients. Yeah, it absolutely is. And and think about who that's disproportionately going to affect is people with dementia or cognitive impairment, you know, all of that back and forth in different settings and you know, the the changes of environment that are going to be really disconcerting to somebody that already has underlying cognitive impairment, um, it really does make make us have to, you know, think hard and hard and fast about how to standardize those processes and really reduce that risk. Because those patients, if they're consistently readmitted, get delirium, um, you know, they're more likely to have a significant adverse health outcomes that that could be, you know, have long-term health implications for them. I would say that the burden of care that patients who are delirious and immobile in the emergency department is also high. And the nursing staff really isn't prepared to provide that level of care in this setting either. It's not an area that's set up for mobility. It's not an area that's set up for like individualized care, really. It's it's designed for quick turnover and not for lodging. So I think that becomes an issue as well when we think about the environmental consequences of boarding patients there. Well, I mean, there's huge implications of, you know, just putting patients in hallways and in places that are not great, you know, patient care areas, right? There's the risk of immobility or, you know, the risk of that person, you know, thinking about how disconcerting it is just to be in a hospital room by itself. And then think about a patient that, you know, had a fall in the middle of the night and maybe doesn't have their hearing aids or doesn't have their glasses. And then they're in the middle of a busy hallway with, people running around and beeping and noises and lights flashing. I mean, no for, you windows. Me, for you and me, that's annoying for somebody that is an older adult that's experiencing an acute medical condition. That could be, you know, the trigger for, you know, becoming delirious and, you know, having to require a skilled nursing facility stay after that emergency department visit versus being able to go home. Yeah. So talk to me about a little bit about like risk stratification for these patients. How do we make sure we're not sending the wrong people home? Because yeah. I know your goal, your goal is really to keep people happily and safely aging in place at home, correct? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think as a home care therapist, I've seen multiple times people with medical clearance to go home from the ED And I've gone to their house and they are not ambulatory and not able to ambulate because of pain or because of, you know, some sort of significant cognitive impairment. And I found them in bed for 15 or 16 hours after being discharged at 2 a.m. from the emergency room. And that's really, really concerning because, um, you know, not assessing mobility is probably one of the biggest mistakes I would say happens in the emergency department. Somebody has to see that patient walk. Um, Can they get to the bathroom from their bed? Can they transfer? Can they do it safely? Do they need an assistive device? And too many times we, 
we send somebody home with good labs and terrible gait speed. And I think that should never happen. Well, I'll do you one better and say that their vitals need to be assessed while they're moving as well, because mm -hmm. their gait speed may also be fine, but then their mm -hmm. recovery time is terrible or they become mm -hmm. hypotensive in the bathroom, or it turns out that they're hypoxic to 70% every time mm -hmm. they stand up. So mm -hmm. I've had patients where the physicians are like, you know, there's nothing really wrong with them, but they can't walk. Mm -hmm. And then I'll get that patient up and walking and their vitals are like mm -hmm. dropping. And there is that then guides a lot more medical workup. But if we're just sending that patient home by wheelchair transport, so they get safely into their house, mm -hmm. then what? Yep, absolutely. And, and there's too many times where we're the, we're the only people who capture some of these changes during exercise or during movement. You know, we're gonna be the ones that capture, you know, some incident angina that occurs during exercise and might flag much more serious um, concerns than what that patient presented with. You know, I've I've told the story that I've caught cerebellar strokes in home care that were dis, you know that were discharged from the emergency room as gastroenteritis because they didn't do full movement assessments of this person, which would have clearly shown you know dysmetria. Yeah. Yeah. And like taxi gets missed. I also see in notes like a, the neuroservice will come and see a patient and they document this beautiful mm -hmm. neurologic exam. Mm -hmm. And then it'll say patient safe to be discharged. And then under gate portion of their exam, it'll say unsafe to mobilize high fall risk. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, wait a minute, you didn't even like, how are they safe to go home if they weren't safe to evaluate? So that kind of thing is, is concerning to me. Otherwise the examination's outstanding. There's so mm -hmm. much valuable information there, but if the person didn't mm -hmm. sit up, how does their uprighting look? If the person didn't stand up, how does their postural sway look? If the person cannot find their way down the hallway and back, how is their wayfinding and their orientation to their circumstances? I really like using the stops walking while talking test. I don't know mm -hmm. if you use this, but it, mm -hmm. it works great in the emergency department because I just chat with them while they try to walk down the hall. And if they have to stop and look at me and they can't manage the environment and they can't attend to the task, that's a concern for me. And then I'll do a little bit deeper dive with those folks. What would you suggest that PTs are looking at in the ED to make sure they're safe to thrive at home? Yeah. So, I mean, simple tests like chair rise, you know, I use this 30 second chair rise, but even if somebody can't do it once or needs significant upper extremity assistance, and that's new, you know, taking multiple attempts to get out of a chair is a very prognostic sign for fall risk. Yes. You know, if that person came to you with a fall and they got picked up by EMS and got sent, you know, sent to the emergency department and they're fine, did they get up from that fall by themselves? Did they have any sort of way to contact, you know, somebody if that happened again? Could they, do they know how to get up from a, a fall? Um, yeah. You know, so understanding some aspect of, of fall recovery is important. And, mm -hmm. you know, and then I think simple things like, you know, the, the dual tasking gate, I think is great. Tug is a great test, but I think it's hard in a busy emergency room. Yes. Um, I also use short physical performance battery, um, you know, those, those quick balance assessments just understand you know, if people can either do the tests or at least understand how to protect themselves if they're in a position where they're not feeling stable. And, and often I, I will catch things that are, you know, balanced reactions with no defensive responses or something that would clue me in that this person's maybe not super safe to go home. I agree. I, I really also like having people pick something up off the ground. 
can you, if, if I drop this pen, can you pick it back up for me? That just watching them kind of perform that task and see their comfort level with bending forward to pick something up is, is very enlightening most times. I think the, the other thing that's been helpful for me is to just say to the patient, why do you think that you're falling? And every once in a while, you know, I'll have somebody say, well, you know, I think it's probably the seven shots of tequila I have while I watch my evening shows. That is the main problem. And I'm like, okay, can we do that in bed instead of in the chair? Um, But other times patients are like, really have good insight into what the issue is. My walker doesn't fit in my bathroom. I don't see very well in the dark. Like there are usually reasons. I also get a lot of patients who are referred for mechanical falls. But then upon further investigation with the patient, it really does appear to be more of a sinkable event. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think having somebody follow up with them is really important once they go home, because mm-hmm. I think those home safety pieces can help you untangle whether or not that mechanical fall was a loose throw rug, or it was like somebody hopped up out of bed to go to the bathroom at night. Um, and then they they got dizzy and they, you know, the, the throw rug was just an innocent bystander. Um, mm-hmm. And that's really important to assess. And I think there's a lot of ED to home care transitions that could be improved if there was some sort of regular pipeline to get home care involved um, early and often with these patients to help untangle some of those things. And, you know, there's other underutilized assessments and, and questions about urinary incontinence and, and mm-hmm. think we definitely don't refer to our pelvic health colleagues nearly enough, or at least assess those things as part of our, um, you know, as part of our routine clinical practice. And and I have a a habit of asking that for every patient, like about incontinence and having to rush to go to the bathroom and whether or not this is functional or stress related and, and getting a sense of what we might be able to do to modify some of that, that risk. And Um, I think those are major contributors to these quote unquote mechanical falls that we can't ignore. Classic story is you have a patient who has congestive heart failure, doesn't want to take the Lasix because it makes it very difficult for them to go to the bathroom. So they stop taking their Lasix because they don't want to have to keep getting up to go to the bathroom because they're afraid Mm -hmm. they're going to fall. Mm -hmm. So then they stop taking the Lasix, they get volume overloaded, they have Mm -hmm. difficulty breathing, then they have to come back into the ED. Mm-hmm. And they have difficulty mobilizing because they've become mm-hmm. deconditioned. Their heart function is worse. Their respiratory functions worse. Often their blood sugar is worse. They probably have a UTI at this point. And now we start this cycle again. And oftentimes these patients will need to be admitted to the hospital sometimes to get them like back to their baseline a little bit. What do you suggest for making sure that these patients have the support they need to make sure that isn't happening? Is it education? Is it that they need somebody to help them manage their medications? Is it need that they need more support in the home? Or do you think it's it's time in a case like that for a patient to explore a higher level of care? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of factors there. I mean, some of the things I try are like, what's the simplest solution in terms of, could we keep, you know, a walker beside the bed to make it a little easier? Like, yeah, that person's really resistant to use a walker in the community. They don't want the stigma of having a disability. Some of the patients I've talked to in West Baltimore don't want to be a target for for violent crime, which I feel like is Hmm. makes them more, you know, they they don't want to use that assistive device. But sometimes I negotiate with patients to use it inside or keep it right next to bed. And then that's something that they use at night to, to get up. You know, things like putting night lights up is a very simple, low cost solution where 
maybe that could help reduce falls, you know, putting grab bars up and, you know, doing those environmental inspections. And, um, you know, I think those are places where I would start before I would try to reduce independence. Mm -hmm. um, you know, then bedside commodes are an option. And again, patients like think that there's a stigma around that, but I tell them that there's a lot more concern about them breaking hips. And, you know, my line is I do research on hip fracture and, you know, head injuries from falls. I don't need any more patients in my studies. So why don't you try this? Because if you don't use this, there's a very high likelihood that I will have to see you in a research study. And sometimes they laugh and, you know, sometimes I can get the caregivers. Um, to, to be on board, but environmental modifications make a huge difference. And that's why I'm a big proponent of, you know, making that referral to home care and getting somebody in that house, because, you know, you just don't know what you're, you know, what's possible until somebody walks in there sometimes. And I think that's a barrier for us is even if we set up home care services, mm -hmm. I, I know that like so many little things could make a difference. And like, I'll have a patient who gets mm -hmm. lots of things delivered by Amazon, but then now they can't walk in their living room because there's boxes everywhere, but they're not able to unpack the boxes. Like who do I get for these patients mm -hmm. to come in and provide that unskilled care that they need, that assistance that they need just to make their, their home habitable is also an issue. Yeah. The other barrier I run into is family members who may be living with that person who don't want to provide assistance and don't want to allow anyone else into the home for whatever mm -hmm. reason. Sometimes it's criminally related. Sometimes it's elder neglect or abuse. Mm -hmm. So those are two things that I'd like your input on. Like how can we address those things from the ED to help mm -hmm. these patients be safer at home? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think these are very difficult topics. I'm certainly not an expert on elder yeah. abuse by any means, but I think you and I both have probably had to make those phone calls before. Um, so I think knowing injury patterns, knowing kind of the, you know, repeated histories of trauma and falls, you know, is kind of my first step, you know, identifying for things like, you know, dehydration and, and some of those signs and symptoms that contribute to falls, but also might intersect with some of those, um, you know, signs and symptoms of neglect. And then, you know, I think it's really challenging after that. You can't force caregivers to be involved, but I think, um, you know, there are a lot of community level programs that, you know, are, are available at the municipal level that will go in and help install grab bars and do things for people, especially those that are on Medicaid or, or, you know, have, have other resources like that. Like there's a program called Capable, which is for people with, um, that are living at home with a disability. And it actually bundles together some handyman services, um, some equipment and some occupational therapy visits at home hmm. to try to set the environment up um, to, to make the disabilities easier for people to live with. Um, that, you know, helps with grab bars and helps with raised toilet seats and one of the biggest risk factors for elder abuse um, is higher, being a higher caregiver burden. So if maybe that person could be more independent, um, that could help um, you know, reduce some of the risk in those situations. Um, of course, you still have to call and report those things, but um, anything you can do to, to make that household, that, that you know, physical function more supported in that household, could help reduce the risk to that patient and, and make it safer for them for falls and then potentially reduce caregiver burden and, and hopefully reduce the risk of any um, 
you know, any of these situations that are maybe neglect or, or kind of borderline from escalating into something that is um, clearly, clearly harmful to an older adult. Yeah, I think those are just some of the most difficult issues that we have with keeping people safely at home. And then when the home care runs out, mm -hmm. yep. that that care transition from when the home care agency is like, okay, we're done providing services. And then mm -hmm. that goes, they go from being well supported mm -hmm. to nothing. And then we end up back in that cycle again. Yeah. So there's two models that I think are helpful, you know, for people that are on Medicaid or consistently at risk, there's, you know, long-term services and supports, which is becoming a much more common model for people, um, which is, um, you know, nursing and, and nursing assistance to help with ADLs and IADLs that, you know, for people who might be nursing home eligible, but could live at home. Um, but there's also for people that are maybe a little higher functioning, there is home-based outpatient care models like the Fox Rehab model or, or other models that um, will come to the home and provide care. And I think those models have huge potential to reduce um, or mitigate some health disparities and that people experience getting to therapy because um, those, you know, those therapists, one, can address some of these home issues that are much more common in people that are experiencing poverty. Um, and they might be able to work on things like community mobility or, or other um, really important goals that let this person be more independent um, than maybe traditional outpatient therapy can with, you know, the, the kind of the crammed schedules and the difficulties, you know, it would take time-wise to get somebody out to practice getting to a bus stop, for example, from the University of Colorado Hospital, um, you know. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Getting into the building, I think, is sometimes one of the biggest barriers for people. Mm -hmm. By the time they get dressed and they get into the car and they get to their appointment and they park and they get into the building and they go through the lobby, like they don't have any reserves left to participate in therapy. So mm -hmm. I really like the home care model. What do you see as a home care therapist are things that we're failing to do in the ED for our patients to prepare them for that successful transition? Like, how can I talk to my patients about home therapy? How can I prepare them to participate? Yeah, I mean, I don't think I would frame it as failing, right? Like ED, there's got to be some gaps, right? There's gaps, right? I don't consider it a failure, right? Gaps are, you know, going to be present in any healthcare system without a lot of redundancies, right? Emergency department physicians and clinicians, including therapists, are doing, you know, some amazing work with, you know, a very high volume of patients that are high acuity and a fast pace. And um, but what I think gets dropped is, I think like we talked about assessments of mobility, you know, especially in EDs without physical therapists are often missing. Mm -hmm. um, assessments of home environment, home safety, and simple questions about those aspects, getting up and down stairs. I mean, they've, yes. I, I've seen so many patients who in home care who can't climb stairs, but they got you know, carried back up into their house after an emergency department visit by somebody but in a fire or an emergency, they couldn't have gotten out and they yep. live alone. Nope. Um, yep. So I think those are, you know, the, these physical function and, and home safety things do get missed a lot. And I think, you know, having a, a more consistent pathway to refer to home care from ED, especially for highly vulnerable patient populations like people living with dementia, because um, home care could go in and spend a week and that person doesn't need a lot of care. But we, you can be rest assured that that referral goes and within 48 hours, somebody's at that person's house putting a set of eyes on them and, and helping follow up. 
Um, but those, you know, those pathways are hard to create at three o'clock in the morning. So um, there's not a great way to do it right now, but I think there's potential to, to do better there. Okay, I think that's helpful. And then what would you suggest we say to patients when we say, hey, we're going to set up some home physical therapy for you. This is what you need to know. Yeah, I mean, first telling them that and not just referring them without talking to them, say, hey, this person's going to go <laughs> at your house. Here's a little bit about home care. Um, you know, people get it thinking that they're not allowed to leave the home, right? That they have to be homebound, which yes. is true, but homebound doesn't mean you're never allowed to leave, right? So understanding those rules, being able to explain it to people and really explaining what the goal is that we want to make sure that there's ways that we can keep you out of the ED, that we can try to set up your house to make it a little easier for you to do things. Not that, you know, we want to keep them trapped at home, right? I think the way it's presented to patients can make a huge difference. Mm -hmm. um, and I've seen it done well. And I've seen it done really poorly where people are terrified to see me at their house. And I'm not <laughs> a very scary person. So um, I, I think the way it's presented to people as, as a service and support that can keep them at home and the goal is to promote independence um, is very different than you're becoming frail and housebound and you're probably going to end up in a nursing home. So this is just like, you know, a stopgap. Yeah. I think the other thing that I, I often try to remind people to is that this isn't forever. Like this is not, cause I get a lot of caregivers that are like mm -hmm. so happy that we're gonna send support to the home. Mm -hmm. But then they think that those services will last indefinitely. Yep. yep. So I, I, I would add to that, I think having that discussion with the patient and the caregiver about what their goals for that time period will be. Mm -hmm. What do you need to have to be successful to stay out of the emergency department? What specific things are you having the most difficulty with that led you to be here today? Mm -hmm. These are the things I want you to talk to the home physical therapist about, mm -hmm. like transferring in the bathroom, getting in and out of the shower, what to do if you fall. Because, mm -hmm. I mean, I can get somebody on the floor in the emergency department, but it's gross and for one, it's super gross. And for two, like, it's not like a great representation of what they have to work with at home. So I often tell them, ask the physical therapist to help you learn how to get off the floor, particularly mm -hmm. if they've called eight times to the fire department for falls and they're not really injured. They're just not able to get back up. So I, I think that's what I would add to that as well. And the emergency department has a lot of potential to identify vulnerabilities for patients who don't access re you know, regular medical care, things like social isolation or loneliness and yes. food insecurity and yes. other things, and at least initiate putting those resources in play. Um, you know, a, a referral to home care with a specific order for social work to go and see this person for mm. social isolation, social support, that starts the process, right? You're not gonna fix all of these upstream social determinants in one ED visit, but you can at least identify and not just screen for them, but actually start you know, acting upon what you observe in terms of those social disparities. Um, and PTs might be a big proponent of identifying frailty and understanding that, oh, wow, this person's not really eating that much protein. They're really, their diet quality is not great. Oh, they're because they're food insecure. That might be why they're getting weaker, right? It doesn't have a lot to do with medical illness. It's just they are, you know, they are not able to get enough calories and maybe we can address that. 
I think that's uh, also a really good plug for having occupational therapy in your emergency department as well, because sometimes it's, it's like just this inability to prepare their own meals. It's this, um, lack of initiation to do it. Like I I've had a number of older adults who've lost their partner and they used to cook for them and their partner. And now they just no longer have that interest in cooking because they're not really caring for someone else. And they've lost that drive to do it for themselves. So I think having the occupational therapist there as well to help support that patient and identifying why they aren't able to complete those tasks is valuable as well. Yeah. I think there's so much that, you know, the rehabilitation professions, you know, PT, OT, and speech could identify certain issues. And there's certain patient types who, you know, that could be primarily like these are rehab and disability related issues um, that that we really could start to intervene on in the emergency department. And we're going to have the best idea out of any of our medical colleagues of what the most appropriate follow-up care is going to be to address those specific issues. I love that. Well, I really appreciate having you on the show today. I've learned a lot about how I can maybe set my patients up for a little bit more success. What parting thoughts do you have for PTs who are practicing in the ED on how to make their emergency departments a little bit more friendly for the older adult? Yeah. And I say the same thing I will for acute care. You are more than a discharge recommendation. You are more than just this person can go home or not. Yes. Um, provide so much more contextual information. And so presenting, you know, those those pieces of information in a really cohesive, cogent thought in a really, you know, high paced environment is a critical skill to have and it's so valuable to your patients. So really get used to advocating for addressing needs that are beyond just can this person go home or not. I love that. Thank you so much for being on the show. We really appreciate it. And thank you for all the your work that you're doing for older adults. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. You're officially discharged from the ED. Perfect. Hey, hi, everybody. Welcome back to In the ED Now. I'm Rebecca Griffith, the EDDPT, and with me today is Dr. Jason Falvey. Welcome. Hey, good. Great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. I'm so happy to talk to you because I think we have a lot of overlap with what we do, even though it might not seem that way. So can you tell people a little bit about yourself? Sure. Uh, so I'm a physical therapist, and I have practiced in home care before going into research in 2014. So I spent four years as a home care slash, you know, kind of jack of all trades therapist in Wyoming, not far from you. Mm -hmm. And uh, then went ahead and did my PhD at University of Colorado. So right, right next door to, to where you're working in the ED and did a lot of research around care transitions. How do we keep people at home and out of the hospital, um, you know, during periods of vulnerability, you know, after serious hospitalization, surgery, um, you know, or other, you know, major, major things that happen to people in their lives that challenge their independence. And, you know, now I'm a faculty member at the University of Maryland School of Medicine, uh, building on that research and doing much of the same, you know, how do we get out into the community and support people to be at home and out of nursing homes and, and not just surviving, but thriving in their communities. I think that's great. And because my goal is to keep people out of the hospital and out of the emergency department. And the emergency department is really like a gateway into the hospital system, into the healthcare system. And I think we can probably both agree that the more we can keep people out of that, then hopefully the better off they'll be. But that really requires a lot of support. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think there's social supports, there's environmental supports in terms of the neighborhoods that you live in, how socially cohesive they are. There's 
a lot of medical factors and you know just sometimes random luck of the draw where you live rural versus urban can make a huge difference as, as you probably see on a daily basis yeah and i know there's this conversation about like rural resources um being very limited but i, I find urban resources are also very limited and there's not like there's just like not a great place to be unless you're in a very well established and supported zip code i think otherwise you're kind of in a desert at either end yeah, I mean, our research here focuses on neighborhood socioeconomic disadvantage in urban areas. So I live in Baltimore, which has a major divide between the wealthy and, and those who really are um, experiencing significant amounts of poverty. And those people that live in those zip codes that are, that are you know, most deprived are more likely to end up in the hospital. They're less likely to be able to live disability free and they're more likely to experience a lot of avoidable disability and mortality after these kinds of injuries. Um, so emergency department is an important resource, but um, certainly we have to put in a lot of steps afterwards to help them transition back to their community successfully and, and thrive. So what is a care transition for people who may not know? So when I say care transition, I think about you know, generally from some sort of uh, inpatient setting, and that might be emergency department, it might be a hospital, it might be a nursing home, and transitioning that person to another level of care, um, whether that is to home and getting some home supports, whether that is to um, a post-acute care facility um, or rehabilitation facility, um, or whether that's to back to assisted living or, or um, you know, senior apartments. But either way, there's a period of vulnerability when you go from a higher intensity setting to a lower intensity setting in mm -hmm. terms of you have a lot of medical supervision, you get a lot of help, and then you're transitioning to places where maybe you're much more reliant on you know, caregivers, and you're much more reliant on neighborhood, and um, or you might be at the whims of things like weather, which you certainly don't have to worry too much about snow and ice and natural um, you know, the natural barriers to accessing care that you would if you're in an institutional facility. That's a good point. We definitely have uh, issues with discharging patients based on weather issues all the time. So I, that is not one that I would have thought of. So in the emergency department, I usually think of myself as like the person at the train station that helps people get on the right train, right? So as you talk about care transitions, that's a lot of what we do. Mm -hmm. as PTs in the emergency department. You're going on the subacute rehab train. You're going on the acute rehab mm -hmm. train. I'm going to put you on the home health train with a wing and a prayer. I'm going to send you to outpatient PT because you're doing great. And then every once in a while, it's like, hey, like, I don't know that you need anything from me. Here's some reassurance. Let's get you set up at, back at home. Mm -hmm. But what are we missing in making those transitions successful? Because one of the major metrics that most emergency departments have is around bounce back. And I find that when those care transitions fail, we're seeing a lot of patients come back into the emergency department. Yeah. And so I think it comes down to two things. One, we don't talk to each other. Um, mm. The levels of care don't talk to each other. I think we know this from acute care literature, research that I've done and others suggests that when we even complex patients that are transitioning from acute care to home or to post-acute care, we rarely get therapist to therapist communication to make sure things that are important about disability and function aren't dropped. And disability and function aren't 
primary things that the medical team might be paying attention to. They might be more worried about that heart failure or that ejection fraction number or you know, which stage of COPD this person's at, but not necessarily what assisted device or um, what level of support or what their trajectory of functional recovery was. Big, big important piece of information that we often don't communicate across care settings. And for many reasons, partly because there's not an incentive to do it. Um, you know, there's often disincentives in terms of productivity to do that um, in yeah. the care setting. And in the emergency department setting, there's some pragmatic considerations. Like if it's 1 a.m., you're probably not going to get very many outpatient or home care therapists on the phone. And if you do, they're not going to be very happy with you. Yes. So, the joke is the joke is generally like no one wants to do physical therapy at two o'clock in the morning, especially the physical therapist. Yeah, well, it's absolutely true. We are we are not night owls as a, as a profession, I don't think. Um, at least I'm certainly not. Um, so the communication barriers are real, and I think the other part of it is we have zero framework or clinical practice guidelines to guide. We have no idea what the key hmm. pieces of information are. We have no standards of practice around this. So it is you know, unwarranted heterogeneity to the extreme. And yes. some facilities do it really well and they have a great system. And some don't do this, you know, they have zero structure for this. And the more medically complex patients you have, the more heterogeneous these structures are in terms of how you handle these really complex transitions. And I think that is a place that we're, we're very modifiable. The acute care PT section is actually working on a clinical practice guideline. And I'm part of this committee where they're working on what should be the common elements of care transitions and what pieces of information should be consistently um, you know, communicated across um, facilities. I think that makes sense. And there is research that exists that shows that physical therapist recommendations make a big difference to hospital readmissions. Is that correct? Yeah, and not following them has some significant implications. You know, when you take that recommendation and a physician decides then to send somebody to a lower intensity of care, um, there is a higher rate of readmissions. Um, those are small studies, but they are, you know, showing that if you're involved in, um, you know, discharge planning, physical therapists as part of discharge planning teams, that there's actually research that says that that reduces readmissions in and of itself. Um, and then following the discharge recommendation, there's a separate piece of literature that also says that that is a, uh, a very well-established strategy to reduce readmissions is follow the re recommendations of your therapist, which is becoming harder and harder in this, you know, quote unquote, value-based care system where we want to send people to the lowest cost settings that doesn't always meet their needs. Yeah. And what are the financial ramifications of patients being readmitted? Yeah. So hospitals can lose portions of their Medicare reimbursement, their overall Medicare reimbursement for all their patients and for excessive readmissions that are um, higher than their peers um, based on several factors, including um, you know, how complex their patients are and how sick they were. But there are penalties. Um, those penalties, unfortunately, do disproportionately impact hospitals that are treating the most socially disadvantaged patients. So, so there's certainly not a perfect metric of um, you know, understanding which hospitals are good and which hospitals are bad, but those penalties certainly do exist and they have led to some significant changes in how hospitals approach care transitions and mostly for the better, I would think. 
I think that makes a lot of sense. And, and I think in the emergency department in particular, we really don't want to have to be treating the same thing multiple times and having people come back for the same issues. Also, when we have a care transition that fails, like a patient was at a subacute rehab facility and then bounces back because of a fall or because they weren't medically ready to go, then it's harder for us to get that patient placed that second time. Yeah. I mean, I think those are, there's real patient-centered outcome um, you know, implications for readmissions, right? Readmissions aren't just a policy metric and they're not just like a hospital metric. Um, that patient that has to sit for extra days in the hospital um, because they can't get placed, there's a real risk of increased disability for patients that are readmitted for these uh -huh. reasons. Um, sure. and that, that kind of goes under-recognized, but readmissions are associated with declines in physical function that often persist for months or for years after um, that series of hospitalizations, and especially after things like surgery. That makes a lot of sense to me. I know with our current barriers with access to care, we have a lot of patients who are just holding in the emergency department as well. Like they need to be admitted to the hospital, but there are no beds. So they are maybe in the ED for three, four days at a time. And that leads to decreased mobility. It really leads to increased risk of delirium. It leads to, you know, bad positioning, mm -hmm. so many different outcomes for these patients as well. So that if these patients who are already in a weak and vulnerable state are bouncing back to the ED and having to stay again, I think that's going to be very hard on those patients. Yeah, it absolutely is. And, and think about who that's disproportionately going to affect is people with dementia or cognitive impairment, you know, all of that back and forth in different settings and, you know, the, the changes of environment that are going to be really disconcerting to somebody that already has underlying cognitive impairment, um, it really does make make us have to, you know, think hard and hard and fast about how to standardize those processes and really reduce that risk. Because those patients, if they're consistently readmitted, get delirium, um, you know, they're more likely to have a significant adverse health outcomes that that could be, you know, have long term health implications for them. I would say that the burden of care that patients who are delirious and immobile in the emergency department is also high. And the nursing staff really isn't prepared to provide that level of care in this setting either. It's not an area that's set up for mobility. It's not an area that's set up for like individualized care, really. It's it's designed for quick turnover and not for lodging. So I think that becomes an issue as well when we think about the environmental consequences of boarding patients there. Well, I mean, there's huge implications of, you know, just putting patients in hallways and in places that are not great, you know, patient care areas, right? There's the risk of immobility or, you know, the risk of that person, you know, thinking about how disconcerting it is just to be in a hospital room by itself and then think about a patient that, you know, had a fall in the middle of the night and maybe doesn't have their hearing aids or doesn't have their glasses. And then they're in the middle of a busy hallway with, people running around and beeping and noises and lights flashing. I mean, no for, you windows. Me, for you and me, that's annoying for somebody that is an older adult that's experiencing an acute medical condition. That could be, you know, the trigger for, you know, becoming delirious and, you know, having to require a skilled nursing facility stay after that emergency department visit versus being able to go home. Yeah. So talk to me about, a little bit about like risk stratification for these patients. How do we make sure we're not sending the wrong people home? Because yeah. I know your goal, your goal is really to keep people happily and safely aging in place at home, correct? Yeah, absolutely. And, 
you know, I think as a home care therapist, I've seen multiple times people with medical clearance to go home from the ED and I've gone to their house and they are not ambulatory and not able to ambulate because of pain or because of, you know, some sort of significant cognitive impairment. And I found them in bed for 15 or 16 hours after being discharged at 2 a.m. from the emergency room. And that's really, really concerning because, um, you know, not assessing mobility is probably one of the biggest mistakes I would say happens in the emergency department. Yes. Somebody has to see that patient walk. Um, can they get to the bathroom from their bed? Can they transfer? Can they do it safely? Do they need an assisted device? And too many times we, we send somebody home with good labs and terrible gait speed. And I think that should never happen. Well, I'll do you one better and say that their vitals need to be assessed while they're moving as well, Mm -hmm. because their gait speed may also be fine, but then their Mm -hmm. recovery time is terrible or they become Mm -hmm. hypotensive in the bathroom, or it turns out that they're hypoxic to 70% every time Mm -hmm. they stand up. So Mm -hmm. I've had patients where the physicians are like, you know, there's nothing really wrong with them, but they can't walk. Mm -hmm. And then I'll get that patient up and walking and their vitals are like Mm -hmm. dropping. And there is that then guides a lot more medical workup. But if we're just sending that patient home by wheelchair transport so they get safely into their house, mm-hmm. then what? Yep, absolutely. And, and there's too many times where we're the, pe- we're the only people who capture some of these changes during exercise or during movement. You know, we're going to be the ones that capture, you know, some incident angina that occurs during exercise and might flag much more serious um, concerns than what that patient presented with. You know, I've I've told the story that I've caught cerebellar strokes in home care that were dis, you know that were discharged from the emergency room as gastroenteritis because they didn't do full movement assessments of this person, which would have clearly shown you know dysmetria. Yeah. Yeah. And like a taxi gets missed. I also see in notes like a, the neuroservice will come and see a patient and they document this beautiful mm-hmm. neurologic exam. Mm-hmm. And then it'll say patient safe to be discharged. And then under gate portion of their exam, it'll say unsafe to mobilize high fall risk. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, wait a minute, you didn't even like, how are they safe to go home if they weren't safe to evaluate? So that kind of thing is, is concerning to me. Otherwise the examination's outstanding. There's so mm-hmm. much valuable information there, but if the person didn't mm-hmm. sit up, how does their uprighting look? If the person didn't stand up, how's their postural sway look? If the person cannot find their way down the hallway and back, how is their wayfinding and their orientation to their circumstances? I really like using the stops walking while talking test. I don't know mm-hmm. if you use this, but it, mm-hmm. it works great in the emergency department because I just chat with them while they try to walk down the hall. And if they have to stop and look at me, and they can't manage the environment and they can't attend to the task, that's a concern for me. And then I'll do a little bit deeper dive with those folks. What would you suggest that PTs are looking at in the ED to make sure they're safe to thrive at home? Yeah. So, I mean, simple tests like chair rise, you know, I use this 30 second chair rise, but even if somebody can't do it once or needs significant upper extremity assistance, and that's new, now, taking multiple attempts to get out of a chair is a very prognostic sign for fall risk. Yes. You know, if that person came to you with a fall and they got picked up by EMS and got sent, you know, sent to the emergency department and they're fine, did they get up from that fall by themselves? Did they have any sort of way to contact, you know, somebody if that happened again? Could they 
Did I know how to get up from a, a fall? Um, yeah. You know, so understanding some aspect of, of fall recovery is important. And, okay. you know, and then I think simple things like, you know, the, the dual tasking gate, I think is great. Tug is a great test, but I think it's hard in a busy emergency room. Yes. Um, I also use short physical performance battery, um, you know, those, those quick balance assessments just understand you know, if people can either do the tests or at least understand how to protect themselves if they're in a position where they're not feeling stable. And, and often I, I will catch things that are, you know, balanced reactions with no defensive responses or something that would clue me in that this person's maybe not super safe to go home. I agree. I, I really also like having people pick something up off the ground. Can you, if, if I drop this pen, can you pick it back up for me? That just watching them kind of perform that task and see their comfort level with bending forward to pick something up is, is very enlightening most times. I think the, the other thing that's been helpful for me is to just say to the patient, why do you think that you're falling? And every once in a while, you know, I'll have somebody say, well, you know, I think it's probably the seven shots of tequila I have while I watch my evening shows. That is yep. the main problem. And I'm like, okay, can we do that in bed instead of in the chair? Um, but other times patients are like, really have good insight into what the issue is. My walker doesn't fit in my bathroom. Mm -hmm. I don't see very well in the dark. Like there are usually reasons. I also get a lot of patients who are referred for mechanical falls, but then upon further investigation with the patient, it really does appear to be more of a sinkable event. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think having somebody follow up with them is really important once they go home, because mm -hmm. I think those home safety pieces can help you untangle whether or not that mechanical fall was a loose throw rug, or it was like somebody hopped up out of bed to go to the bathroom at night. Um, and then they, they got dizzy and they, you know, the, the throw rug was just an innocent bystander. Um, and that's really important to assess. And I think there's a lot of ED to home care transitions that could be improved if there was some sort of regular pipeline to get home care involved um, early and often with these patients to help untangle some of those things. And, you know, there's other underutilized assessments and, and questions about urinary incontinence and, and mm -hmm. things we definitely don't refer to our pelvic health colleagues nearly enough, or at least assess those things as part of our, um, you know, as part of our routine clinical practice. And, and I have a, a habit of asking that for every patient, like about incontinence and having to rush to go to the bathroom and whether or not this is functional or stress related and, and getting a sense of what we might be able to do to modify some of that, that risk. And um, I think those are major contributors to these quote unquote mechanical falls that we can't ignore. Classic story is you have a patient who has congestive heart failure, doesn't want to take the Lasix because it makes it very difficult for them to go to the bathroom. Yep. So they stop taking their Lasix because they don't want to have to keep getting up to go to the bathroom because they're afraid mm -hmm. they're going to fall. Mm -hmm. So then they stop taking the Lasix. They get volume overloaded. They have mm -hmm. difficulty breathing. Then they have to come back into the ED mm -hmm. and they have difficulty mobilizing because they've become mm -hmm. deconditioned. Their heart function is worse. Their respiratory functions worse. Often their blood sugar is worse. They probably have a UTI at this point. And 
now we start this cycle again. And oftentimes these patients will need to be admitted to the hospital sometimes to get them like back to their baseline a little bit. What do you suggest for making sure that these patients have the support they need to make sure that isn't happening? Is it education? Is it that they need somebody to help them manage their medications? Is it need that they need more support in the home? Or do you think it's, it's time in a case like that for a patient to explore a higher level of care? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of factors there. I mean, some of the things I try are like, what's the simplest solution in terms of, could we keep, you know, a walker beside the bed to make it a little easier? Like, yeah, that person's really resistant to use a walker in the community. They don't want the stigma of having a disability. Some of the patients I talk to in West Baltimore don't want to be a target for, for violent crime, which oh. I feel like is hmm. makes them more, you know, they don't, they don't want to use that assistive device. But sometimes I negotiate with patients to use it inside or keep it right next to bed. And then that's something that they use at night to, to get up. You know, things like putting night lights up is a very simple, low cost solution where maybe that could help reduce falls, you know, putting grab bars up and, you know, doing those environmental inspections. And, um, you know, I think those are places where I would start before I would try to reduce independence. Mm -hmm. um, you know, then bedside commodes are an option. And again, patients like think that, there's a stigma around that, but I tell them that there's a lot more concern about them breaking hips. And you know, my line is I do research on hip fracture and you know, head injuries from falls. I don't need any more patients in my studies. So why don't you try this? Because if you don't use this, there's a very high likelihood that I will have to see you in a research study. And sometimes they laugh and you know, sometimes I can get the caregivers. Um, to, to be on board, but environmental modifications make a huge difference. And that's why I'm a big proponent of, you know, making that referral to home care and getting somebody in that house, because, you know, you just don't know what you're, you know, what's possible until somebody walks in there sometimes. And I think that's a barrier for us is even if we set up home care services, mm -hmm. I, I know that like so many little things could make a difference. And like, I'll have a patient who gets lots of things delivered by Amazon, but then now they can't walk in their living room because there's boxes everywhere, but they're not able to unpack the boxes. Like who do I get for these patients to come in and provide that unskilled care that they need, that assistance that they need just to make their, their home habitable is also an issue. Yeah. The other barrier I run into is family members who may be living with that person who don't want to provide assistance and don't want to allow anyone else into the home for whatever mm -hmm. reason. Sometimes it's criminally related. Sometimes it's elder neglect or abuse. Mm -hmm. So those are two things that I'd like your input on. Like how can we address those things from the ED to help mm -hmm. these patients be safer at home? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think these are very difficult topics. I'm certainly not an expert on elder yeah. abuse by any means, but I think you and I both have probably had to make those phone calls before. Um, so I think knowing injury patterns, knowing kind of the, you know, repeated histories of trauma and falls, you know, is kind of my first step, you know, identifying for things like, you know, dehydration and, and some of those signs and symptoms that contribute to falls, but also might intersect with some of those, um, you know, signs and symptoms of neglect. And then, you know, I think it's really challenging after that. You can't force caregivers to be involved, but I think, um, you know, there are a lot of community level programs that, you know, are, are available at the municipal level that will go in and help install grab bars and do things for people, especially those that are on Medicaid or, or, you know, have, 
have other resources like that. Like there's a program called Capable, which is for people with um, that are living at home with a disability. And it actually bundles together some handyman services, some, some equipment and some occupational therapy visits at home hmm. to try to set the environment up um, to, to make the disabilities easier for people to live with. Um, that, you know, helps with grab bars and helps with raised toilet seats. And one of the biggest risk factors for elder abuse um, is higher, being a higher caregiver burden. So if maybe that person could be more independent, um, that could help um, you know, reduce some of the risk in those situations. Um, of course, you still have to call and report those things, but um, anything you can do to, to make that household, that, that you know, physical function more supported in that household could help reduce the risk to that patient and, and make it safer for them for falls and then potentially reduce caregiver burden and, and hopefully reduce the risk of any, um, you know, any of these situations that are maybe neglect or, or kind of borderline from escalating into something that is um, clearly, clearly harmful to an older adult. Yeah. I think those are just some of the most difficult issues that we have with keeping people safely at home. And then when the home care runs out, mm -hmm. yep. that that care transition from when the home care agency is like, okay, we're done providing services. And then mm -hmm. that goes, they go from being well supported mm -hmm. to nothing. And then we end up back in that cycle again. Yeah. So there's two models that I think are helpful, you know, for people that are on Medicaid or consistently at risk, there's, you know, long-term services and supports, which is becoming a much more common model for people, um, which is, um, you know, nursing and, and nursing assistance to help with ADLs and IADLs that, you know, for people who might be nursing home eligible, but could live at home. Um, but there's also for people that are maybe a little higher functioning, there is home-based outpatient care models like the Fox Rehab model or, or other models that um, will come to the home and provide care. And I think those models have huge potential to reduce um, or mitigate some health disparities and that people experience getting to therapy because um, those, you know, those therapists, one, can address some of these home issues that are much more common in people that are experiencing poverty. Um, and they might be able to work on things like community mobility or, or other um, really important goals that let this person be more independent um, than maybe traditional outpatient therapy can with, you know, the, the kind of the crammed schedules and the difficulties, you know, it would take time-wise to get somebody out to practice getting to a bus stop, for example, from the University of Colorado Hospital, um, you know. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Getting into the building, I think, is sometimes one of the biggest barriers for people. Mm -hmm. By the time they get dressed and they get into the car and they get to their appointment and they park and they get into the building and they go through the lobby, like they don't have any reserves left to participate in therapy. So mm -hmm. I really like the home care model. What do you see as a home care therapist are things that we're failing to do in the ED for our patients to prepare them for that successful transition? Like, how can I talk to my patients about home therapy? How can I prepare them to participate? Yeah, I mean, I don't think I would frame it as failing, right? Like ED, there's got to be some gaps, right? There's gaps, right? I don't consider it a failure, right? Gaps are, you know, going to be present in any healthcare system without a lot of redundancies, right? Emergency department physicians and clinicians, including therapists, are doing, you know, some amazing work with 
you know, a very high volume of patients that are high acuity and a fast pace. And um, but what I think gets dropped is I think, like we talked about, assessments of mobility, you know, especially in EDs without physical therapists are often missing. Mm-hmm. Um, assessments of home environment, home safety, and simple questions about those aspects, getting up and down stairs. I mean, they've, yes. I, I've seen so many patients who in home care who can't climb stairs, but they got you know, carried back up into their house after an emergency department visit by somebody but in a fire or an emergency, they couldn't have gotten out and they yep. live alone. Nope. Um, yep. So I think those are, you know, the, these physical function and, and home safety things do get missed a lot. And I think, you know, having a, a more consistent pathway to refer to home care from ED, especially for highly vulnerable patient populations like people living with dementia, because um, home care could go in and spend a week and that person doesn't need a lot of care. We, you can be rest assured that that referral goes and within 48 hours, somebody's at that person's house putting a set of eyes on them and, and helping follow up. Um, but those, you know, those pathways are hard to create at three o'clock in the morning. So um, there's not a great way to do it right now, but I think there's potential to, to do better there. Okay, I think that's helpful. And then what would you suggest we say to patients when we say, hey, we're going to set up some home physical therapy for you. This is what you need to know. Yeah, I mean, first telling them that and not just referring them without talking to them, say, hey, this person's going to go to your house. Here's a little bit about home care. Um, you know, people get it thinking that they're not allowed to leave the home, right? That they have to be homebound, which yes. is true, but homebound doesn't mean you're never allowed to leave, right? So understanding those rules, being able to explain it to people, and really explaining what the goal is. that we wanna make sure that there's ways that we can keep you out of the ED, that we can try to set up your house to make it a little easier for you to do things. Not that you know, we want to keep them trapped at home, right? I think the way it's presented to patients can make a huge difference. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've seen it done well, and I've seen it done really poorly where people are terrified to see me at their house. And I'm mm-hmm. not a very scary person. So um, I, I think, the way it's presented to people as as a service and support that can keep them at home and the goal is to promote independence um, is very different than you're becoming frail and housebound and you're probably going to end up in a nursing home. So this is just like, you know, a stopgap. Yeah. I think the other thing that I, I often try to remind people to is that this isn't forever. Like this is not because I get a lot of caregivers that are like so happy that we're going to send support to the home. But then they think that those services will last indefinitely. Yep. yep. So I, I, I would add to that, I think, having that discussion with the patient and the caregiver about what their goals for that time period will be. Mm-hmm. What do you need to have to be successful to stay out of the emergency department? What specific things are you having the most difficulty with that led you to be here today? These are the things I want you to talk to the home physical therapist about. Like transferring in the bathroom, getting in and out of the shower, what to do if you fall. Because, I mean, I can get somebody on the floor in the emergency department, but it's gross. And for one, it's super gross. And for two, like, it's not like a great representation of what they have to work with at home. So I often tell them, ask the physical therapist to help you learn how to get off the floor, particularly Mm -hmm. if they've called eight times to the fire department for falls and they're not really injured. They're just not able to get back up. So I I think that's what I would add to that as well. Mm -hmm. And the emergency department has a lot of potential to identify vulnerabilities 
for patients who don't access re you know regular medical care. Things like social isolation or loneliness and yes. food insecurity and yes. other things. And at least initiate putting those resources in play. Um, you know, a, a referral to home care with a specific order for social work to go and see this person for mm. social isolation, social supports, that starts the process, right? You're not going to fix all of these upstream social determinants in one ED visit, but you can at least identify and not just screen for them, but actually start, you know, acting upon what you observe in terms of those social disparities. Um, and PTs might be a big proponent of identifying frailty and understanding that, oh, wow, this person's not really eating that much protein. They're really, their diet quality is not great. Oh, because they're food insecure, that might be why they're getting weaker, right? It doesn't have a lot to do with medical illness. It's just they are, you know, they are not able to get enough calories and maybe we can address that. I think that's uh, also a really good plug for having occupational therapy in your emergency mm -hmm. department as well, because mm -hmm. sometimes it's, it's like just this inability to prepare their own meals. It's mm -hmm. this um, lack of initiation to do it. Like I, I've had a number of older adults who've lost their partner and they used to cook for them and their partner. And now they just mm -hmm. no longer have that interest in cooking because they're not really caring for someone else. And they've lost that mm -hmm. drive to do it for themselves. So I think having the occupational therapist there as well to help support that patient in identifying why they aren't able to complete those tasks is valuable as well. Yeah. I think there's so much that, you know, the rehabilitation professions, you know, PT, OT, and speech could identify certain issues. And there's certain patient types who, you know, that could be primarily like these are rehab and disability related issues um, that that we really could start to intervene on in the emergency department. And we're going to have the best idea out of any of our medical colleagues of what the most appropriate follow up care is going to be to address those specific issues. I love that. Well, I really appreciate having you on the show today. I've learned a lot about how I can maybe set my patients up for a little bit more success. What parting thoughts do you have for PTs who are practicing in the ED on how to make their emergency departments a little bit more friendly for the older adult? Yeah, and I say the same thing I will for acute care. You are more than a discharge recommendation. You are more than just this person can go home or not. Yes. Um, provide so much more contextual information. And so presenting, you know, those those pieces of information in a really cohesive, cogent thought in a really, you know, high paced environment is a critical skill to have and it's so valuable to your patients. So really get used to advocating for addressing needs that are beyond just can this person go home or not. I love that. Thank you so much for being on the show. We really appreciate it. And thank you yeah. for all the your work that you're doing for older adults. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. You're officially discharged from the ED. Perfect. Thank you for listening. In the ED Now is a podcast hosted and produced by Rebecca Griffith, the ED DPT, as part of Rebecca Griffith Physical Therapy, LLC. Our podcast makes you an excellent emergency department physical therapist. This podcast is intended for educational use only and is not intended as clinical or medical advice. While we make every effort for accuracy, factual errors may be present. Since you've been in the ED, I'm prepared to give you your discharge instructions. Please subscribe, share, and find more at the eddpt.com. You're officially discharged.